Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Masculinity Podcast. And like every episode, I'm excited for you to experience this conversation because it is with somebody who I absolutely look up to in almost every single way, especially in height. He is a he's someone who you know makes my my short stature especially apparent. But that's not why we're talking today. Our guest today is Qasem Aslam, and he is someone who has quickly become. I don't idolize very many people, but Qasem seems to have nailed every single box, or or at least you know what what you can say, right? He's had a huge exit from a from a, a, a company and sold his business, and you know had a really really good result there. He's got two incredibly brilliant kids. He's he's got a you know a, a marriage that's that's thriving and and or you know growing and and you know all of the boxes right he's you know in shape and working out and all all these things and so we just we talk about putting it all together and and really his what you'll see is that he is very there's a lot of thought put into it you know it's very intentional it doesn't happen on accident and so like i said this is not about me let's get into today's episode this is cosmosky Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santhia Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Awesome. Thank you for being on the Modern Masculinity Show, man. Hector, thank you for having me. I will. I'll say that for the listeners here. I remember the first time we met. I was nervous about saying your name incorrectly because I even have good friends mispronounce my last name, and it. I have had to work to not let it get to me. And so when you told me, I think you were like, "Oh, it's like uh, it's awesome. Costume is awesome." Or someone told me that. I was like, "Oh, okay." Yes, that's easy to remember. I didn't know that that would become like true. It would be <laughs> that would be actually, you know, what I think of you. And I'll say it here that I, I look up to you in, a, in most ways. Actually, I haven't found one that I don't. Other than you're you're much taller than me, so we'll start it there. That's kind of you, man. You made my day. That's the best compliment I've ever got. We always start off though with what's challenging you right now. You've got a lot of things going on. You've got kids. You've got a wife. You've got businesses. You've got podcasts. Where is life challenging you right now with this man stuff? My biggest challenge at the moment is my marriage, mm. which is it's. I have not said these words out loud in a public forum. Now that I've said that, I just feel ashamed of it. I used to look at people that had challenges in their marriage, and I just assumed if you and your wife are getting along, you're probably a bad dude and you're not doing the right things and you're probably not a good husband. And how could you let it get there? And I didn't even realize that I made those judgments, but I did. And then we're 12 years into it and you just, it's so easy for little things to build up. And we've, we're dealing with not little things. My, we had a grenade thrown into our family by somebody else, an outsider, and we're contending with it. And it's just, it was the lead domino in a collection of dominoes. And now she's in therapy, I'm in therapy and we're in therapy together. I think I spend $2,500 a month just in therapy, but we're doing the work and we're doing our best and we're both committed. But man, anybody who tells you marriage isn't work, they just, they're not paying attention or they're in for a, a surprise someday. Well, perhaps it's because I don't know what your 
model of marriage was. Thankfully, I mean, my parents are going to be the subject of a lot and they're great people. They're still together 30 some odd years later, they're doing it and they found a way, but they weren't a model of relationship goals, if you will. And Mm. so I'm coming in and I think about my wife and and she had an even more challenging upbringing where she had no model of marriage or of a home. I was thinking the other day, I was like, how could I expect her to cook and clean the house when she's never seen anybody do that? She's mm. never seen anybody manage a household. And I don't even know if there's courses on that. I mean, they used to have home economics class to teach these things. And I think right. that, so yeah, man, I hear you. It's not easy in its, in its work. What have you learned over this? I don't know what I would imagine is a compressed journey. Has there been some learnings or insights that you're finding that you didn't blind spots maybe? <laughs> Two that stick out to me. The first one is interesting. It's actually interesting because they're almost contradictions, and I'm going to try to state them in ways that aren't contradictory. But the first one is that you teach people how to treat you, and it's actually your responsibility to do that. My wife's family has been, I'm trying to state this, Hector, without characterizing it unfairly. I'll just say what I feel and then hope that it's as fair as it can be. They were very unkind to me for a very long time. In very consistent and sometimes malicious ways. And what I realized now was as it got worse, it became my fault. Talking about modern masculinity, I think part of what's necessary from the masculine is strength. And I thought in being a peacekeeper or not causing a fuss, or I thought I was doing the right thing by letting it go. And instead, all I was doing was letting it build in me and I became more and more angry over time and they became emboldened over time. It didn't get better. I thought it was going to get better over time. If I just let it go, I didn't make a big fuss about it. I didn't say anything. I assumed at a certain point it would stop and instead it got worse and it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And then it got so bad that I finally, I reached critical mass. I reached threshold and I became this immovable object And I just decided to actually told my wife, the words were, they found the line. This is the line. I don't have another millimeter to give. And I don't know that I was incorrect in that, but it put her, it, it put us in this horrible position because I was just done with an element of her life that was so important, which is her family. Had I stood up for myself in the very beginning, flashback 12 years ago, it would have been really uncomfortable one time, but then they would have known, oh, you know what? You don't fuck with him. I should have taken that discomfort up front because trying to maintain peace for 12 years by allowing myself to be some sacrificial lamb, unless you actually have the temperament where you truly can just let that go and it doesn't bother you, if you're going to allow it to build and you're going to dwell on it and you don't want to be treated that way in the future, you have a responsibility to stand up for yourself. And it wouldn't have been just for me. It was also for my wife and to be frank, also for her family. Because had I taught them how to treat me better, maybe I would have had a better relationship with these people. I would have viewed them more positively. I would have wanted to be around them. But that's not the way that manifested. So that was lesson number one is the metaphor that's fallen in my lap that I really like is the sword. As a man, I take it from Jordan Peterson. Peterson talks about the biblical verse, the meek will inherit the earth. And he talks about how we misinterpret that because the meek isn't a weak person. It's a person with a sword who's capable of using it, but chooses to keep it sheathed. And I don't feel like I have had access to my sword. I I feel like 
it's not my choice to have kept it sheathed. I didn't have the capability of drawing it. And then when I finally reach a point of no return to where I can do nothing but lash out, I swing so far in the other direction. And then there's no coming back. And 12 years into treating me like shit, everybody's like, wow, where did this come from? You know, and they're almost well within their rights for feeling that or believing that because I did allow them to engage with me in a way that regardless of how I felt about it or how I would characterize it, I made it okay. So that's learning lesson number one. And learning lesson number two, and this is the hardest one, is forgiveness, especially in a marriage. But in any relationship that you want to maintain, you just have to learn to forgive and to let it go. And at the moment, I'm saying this and I'm dripping in hypocrisy, Hector, because I don't have that capability. Like I hold on to everything. I keep every receipt. I have it all cataloged, chronologized, and I bring it up all the damn time. And for me, it's because these things are still as of yet unresolved. And I think I'm pretty good at forgiving things once a resolution has been reached. And I feel like it makes sense to me. But until then, I just can't let it go. And it's been very impactful on my marriage. And those are the two things that I'm struggling with and working on. I'd like to be better at wielding my sword in a way that doesn't feel like it's an overreaction, but also doesn't feel like it's setting me up for failure in the future. And I'd like to learn to forgive. That quote or idea of being the warrior in the garden Mm. is something that, that I have only realized maybe in the last day or so was kind of trained out of me. I didn't do a lot of martial arts growing up. I was guided away from those. I did a lot of team sports and recreational sports, which is very, I don't know, it's almost docile, right? It's almost, the, it's like fall in line kind of stuff. Whereas I'm trying, my son is four and I think your, your boys are a couple of years ahead of that. I'm almost trying to encourage him to find his confidence in fighting. And I saw a video somewhere that said something to the effect that if your kids don't roughhouse, like roughhousing is a natural kind of thing. And it seems like with the millennial generation, that was, I don't know, that wasn't encouraged. It was taken away from us and not encouraged. As in. And so I'm curious if you feel like that your sword was, had been taken away from you or if you weren't equipped or what, you know, if that was something that, that you can look back to and say that, or if you can look back and see why you may not have been as confident in those moments. I have a theory here that you tell me if I go too far afield and make too far of a departure. I was raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which if you've never been to Albuquerque, I know it sounds like a little farming community. It's actually, it's a rough place. One of the highest crime rates in the nation per capita. UNM has the highest rape rate of any university campus. Most kids have to go to DARE. We had to go to GREAT, which is gang resistance education and training. I was raised two blocks from the projects by a blind single mother on disability. We were effectively welfare babies. And in Albuquerque, you learn how to fight. And I'm not telling you I'm Billy Badass because I'm not. I got the piss beat out of me way more often than not. But the weakest, nerdiest kid in Albuquerque is worth the biggest badass in Scottsdale, Arizona. There's just, you just, there's not a dude or honestly or a woman in Albuquerque that, that doesn't know how to get hit in the face. And there's a couple of geographic regions like that in the U.S. and around the world. And the issue with it, though, is violence became something that was, it was almost like a, in, in the same way that people reach for drugs to, Dude, to not exactly fix their right. problem, to, to solve their problem. It was almost this, in a weird way, it was a way to pacify whatever the real issue was or to deal with the underlying problem. Yeah, thank you for that. It was a way out 
not a way through and, it's and a coping it was mechanism, maybe. the cheap code. And so, you know, I, I lucked out actually, I pushed out the truth, ended up moving from, I got in trouble in Albuquerque and I called my dad. I was 19 years old and I called him. I told him, I was like, man, I've just basically fucked my whole life up and I'm in a really interesting spot right now and hanging out with people I shouldn't be hanging out with. And they expect things of me that I don't know that I'm going to be able to fulfill on. And so my dad moved me to Scottsdale. So I go overnight from Albuquerque to Scottsdale and I go from, you know, poor brown kid to living in like one of the most affluent areas in the world. And I didn't know my dad very well at the time. I don't know that he was really much of a paternal figure for me. So I, I tried to find for myself something of an evolution. And I basically just reinvented myself from the ground up. And that meant I changed the way I spoke, the way I walked, the way I engaged. Um, it's very duplicitous, if I'm being honest. It was really fake. I was just like, who do I want to be? but not in an integrous way. It was like, who do I want to convince people that I am? But one of the things that got me in a lot of trouble when I moved to Scottsdale, I ended up dating this girl. I loved her so much, man. She was such a, she was so important for me. We never would have worked out, but I'm this like wannabe thug from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I end up dating like this Scottsdale socialite. And all she wants to do is go out and dance and she has fun and she has all these friends. And I, every time we'd go to a bar or a club, I just assumed I was going to get into a fight and I'm always on edge and I don't like people touching me and I don't like people behind me and I don't like not being able to see the door. And I kept responding the way I knew how to respond from Albuquerque. And it wasn't even cool. Like in, in, in where we were, people were just like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? What is this? And it was vile to them because it's not, it's not, there's nothing cool about it. Like when I see people fight here, whatever, like they're doing it for YouTube. They put on their fisticuffs. Like there's nothing glamorous about what you learn from Albuquerque. It's very, it's like rats surviving. And so the violence that I had learned proved not to be any level of prowess. And it was actually something that I became really ashamed of the way that I responded to things. And so I locked it away. And I put it away because it was just this thing that every time it would emerge, I would get treated in, like people were repulsed by me. And because I put it away so deeply, it wasn't accessible to me unless I snapped. And that's what would happen is I wouldn't do anything, say anything. I was very obsequious, very to myself, very just pathetic, man, just pathetic. And until, but then it would be like another straw is added and another straw is added, another straw is added. And then I'd flip my fucking shit. And then I'd, a couple of times, I ended up getting kicked out of a resort here in Phoenix. There's like nine security guards escorting me out. It was one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life because I just got myself in a situation where I got worked up when I shouldn't have gotten worked up and I reached critical mass and I just exploded. And not allowing myself early stage access to the sword put me in a position to where when I drew it, I was going to draw blood. That was... I don't know. You can cut all that out. I don't know if any of that's helpful at all, but that's more or less, I think, what happened to me and my ability to show strength. I viewed it as such a liability and not necessarily as a virtue that I tried to put it away. And then in putting it away, it, uh, not having access to it was a problem. My, my little brother, he's four years younger than me. He was born and raised in the same environment. He and I went slightly different directions. He spent five years on the streets, five years in prison. He was on a four yard, maximum security. He's with killers. His stories, man, we should have him on the podcast, Hector. He'd crush. He's in the opposite direction. Calls it having it on tap. Um, he has it on tap. Me and my brother went to the grocery store. This is right after he got out of prison the first time. We get out of, he gets out of prison. He and I are at Safeway. And he's swole. He's, he's my height. He's 6'4", but he's been in prison for years. You know what I mean? Like he is just, this boy is decked out. And he was, he ran the yard. He was the real deal. 
all the stories. And we're in line at Safeway. And this rugby team, the whole team, rugby players comes in. And they're loud and they're boisterous and they're joking around and they're roughhousing. And, and I just immediately, I was just like, oh, this is probably not good. And they end up behind us. And one of them says something that was violently aggressive. And it sounded like it was aimed at us. And so my little brother turns around, full 182, not just over the shoulder, turns around and very, very calmly, very politely, he's like, I'm sorry, man, what was that? I just wanted to make sure that you weren't talking to me. And the guy's like, I'm so sorry. I was talking to my buddy over here. I did totally understand how that would have been misinterpreted, whatever. And my brother goes, hey, no problem. And they shake up. And then Sammy turns back around. And uh, first of all, I'm thinking to myself, like, what were we going to do if he was talking to us? You know what I mean? It was like 10 of these fools. Like, we were just going to get. But that's the thing about my brother, too, is he does not care. I'm not telling you who's going to take 10 of those guys. He wasn't. But he took out three of them. Like, he was going to he was going to do some damage. And it also didn't matter because that's not why you do what you do. But what I really envy about that is it was on tap for him. He turned around and in that moment, and he, and he was calm. That's how you know it's on tap because when I get mad and when I get ready to like be aggressive or draw my sword, I'm shaking and I'm, I can barely, and I can't articulate myself and I'm just like furious and I can't control it. And it's because I don't have it accessible. And so when it finally does boil up, it's actually boiling and it's a pressure cooker. And here's my little brother who years in prison, years on the streets, he just had it. And at any point, it was like that, the scene in Avengers when the Hulk goes, my secret is that I'm always angry and he just turns whenever he wants to turn. When you have that under control, and hopefully you don't have to go to prison to learn to do that. But when you have that under control, God, are you formidable. I just, I don't have it. I don't have it under control at all. I want to. And I think maybe that is taking martial arts or learning to harness it because you need it accessible but you want it accessible enough to where you can put it away when you need to put it away too. He didn't turn around and get all wild out right in the moment. He turned around, clarified the situation, was ready to address whatever he needed to address. And then when everything was fine, he turned back around and we were okay. And it was such an example to me of what it should be to be a man. You know, a man should be able to turn around and defend himself. That should happen. That whole like ignore it, let it go. I think that's bullshit. I'm going to teach my boys that too. You stand up for yourself. If you got to take one on the chin, you do that. But you know, this, this be the bigger man mantra is misapplied. Right. Sometimes you just, you draw a line and you're like, no, I'm not going to let you speak to me that way. And, but well, in order to do that, you have to be able to back it up. And right now I just can't dude. I've just, I've broken myself. So I want to, I don't know what the word is. This anger thing. I think that there, you're, there's something there. And you mentioned on a call we were on that you led recently, actually, that anger management is a thing that maybe more guys deal with than they're willing to admit. And I for sure would put myself in that category. I would never mm. think I had anger problems, but it was also because I never let it out. I shoved away that emotion and anytime it seeped out, it would convert itself into some other form of, it would convert itself into something else. And it was because we went to a retreat. We were both at a retreat in Austin. How long ago was it? I don't know, a couple months ago. And after that, we came back and there was a lot of great stuff that happened. But I realized I was much more angry. And it's also maybe because there's emotionally more available. But I realized that I was never given the tools to know what, in the same way, like I boil up mm. and it feels out of control. So I, all that to say, you're not alone there. There's something about the, I'll use prison as a microcosm. But maybe it's not prison, maybe it's a fraternity, or maybe it's boot camp, or maybe it's basic training, or maybe it's the football team. There's something about being baptized by fire 
within a circle of other men that I think serves us. And my little brother got it from prison. And there was a lot of good my little brother got from prison. I've seen other men get it from the military or whatever. But I had it, I played basketball in high school. And that's the most comfortable I ever felt in my masculinity is when I was on the basketball team and I felt like I had a community and I felt like I could draw from it. And I think the answer might be something there because so much of the way that you learn to interact with other people becomes, it, it stems from how you're interacting with your friends first. Mm-hmm. And we're not around big groups of men for extended periods of time, generally speaking. And when you are, it's actually, if you look at the way that men engage with each other, it's hysterical because it's nothing but, but nonstop, vicious negativity. You know what I mean? That's, dude, I don't, like me and my friends in high school, like I went, if I knew something bothered you, that was the nerve I was going to hit until you, until you broke. And then you did the same thing back to me. But what was nice about it is we were actually strengthening each other yeah. for when somebody outside the circle did it. And then we were both going to kill them. And yeah. I missed that. I miss that kind of like that, that Spartan camaraderie. Part of this modern masculinity thing is that they say men should be vulnerable and men should be whatever, that they should be in touch with their emotions. And I think there's absolutely truth to that. What they don't tell you is that you sh- that doesn't mean that you should just go dump it on your wife or dump mm. it on your kids. Perhaps it's just my particular situation, but that even though I'm feeling something, it doesn't mean that I need to give that or express that to to my family in this moment. And what's interesting about being in a space of guys is that it's one of the few places where you can dump those things, right? Where those things can be expressed in a way that's not going to break or damage anything. The idea of like a men's group seems so woo-woo or so foreign or so antithetical to the culture of bro that I think both you and I came up around that I think it's at the detriment of a lot of guys. Yeah, I think that you should be vulnerable or you should be open or you should be... Those things are interesting to me because, uh, first of all, I don't disagree with them. I just read Brene Brown's Daring Greatly at the advice of a very close friend and it was phenomenal. But consider the source. In a lot of this diagnoses that we've been given, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And so they're prescribing this result. But then the same sources are also, in my very uninformed opinion, they're full-blown attack mode, man. I think masculinity is under attack. I think men are under attack. I think that you're guilty until proven innocent. And even then, you're probably suspect. And we have to put up with somebody, I forget who it was, but somebody was talking about uh, the way that fathers are portrayed on television. And you can't find an admirable father on television. They're all dumb, fat, oafish, lazy, stupid, so it's it, it, from what I've seen in many instances, this whole men should be X is coming from the same part of the peanut gallery that's also not very fond of men in general. Hmm. So I'm like, all right, well, if you don't like me, why am I listening to you? Well, the other piece of this too that I think is really interesting, it gets ultra cyclical and probably can be canceled to be honest with you, is this is the freest, most prosperous time in human history, period. And we're dealing with like, an interesting paradigm that says masculinity is a poison and it needs to be rectified and it's responsible for all of the ills in the past. And I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe it is. But if it's responsible for everything in the past, that's a sword that cuts both ways. And if it's responsible for all the bad, then it's responsible for all the good. And we live in the most free, prosperous time we've ever lived in. So there's something positive 
about masculinity that we're shutting down and putting away and we're burning at the stake. It just feels tragic to me. And I see it with some of my friends, man. I see this desperation to be an ally, this desperation to prove that you're not sexist or to prove that you're not toxic or to prove that you're on the side of good like this. It's not even virtue signaling because they're not doing it to attempt a positive response, to attempt to elicit a positive response. They're doing it to make sure that they don't catalyze a negative response. And this, the presupposition that the man is negative unless he verbally and or otherwise articulates, it's dangerous. And it's what causes us to put down the things that we actually need, that everybody needs. You need a man as much as you need a woman. Right. You need a man and you need that man to act like a man. And there's a reason there's 2 trillion years of evolution at play as to why we respond to things the way that we respond to. Maybe there's a really, there was reading this phenomenal book called Why We Love. And she talks about why men's emotions aren't as accessible as women's emotions. And it makes a lot of sense because a woman's emotions need to be more accessible because the woman's caring for the child and a man's emotions need to be less accessible because the man actually has to function. So if we are under attack, you and I, we live in a little village and we're under attack. Our wives' emotions have to be accessible so they can emote in a way that allows them to instantly save and sacrifice themselves for the children. Our emotions need to be less accessible because we have to go pick up a rock or a spear and go fight these fools. And if we're sitting there wailing and worrying, like we're not going to be able to function. And to just instantly wake up one day and decide, oh, we've progressed beyond this and we're above it and we know better than nature and evolution. And this is the way that you should respond now. Go sit down and talk to your therapist about it until you're fixed. I'm like, let's play that out and see how that ends up going. And the thing that I think is the funniest, bro, is when you, and this again will get me canceled, so let's just play get costume canceled today. Let's say we're all on a cruise boat and everybody's playing woke. We're all just woke as hell. Everybody's equal. It's all the same. Woke, woke, woke. Toxic masculinity, all that horse shit until the boat starts to sink. Can I give you a better one? Maybe it is. So my wife, I said it the other day and she did not like it. I go, yeah, everybody's all equal until there's a spider in the corner. Yeah. Because my wife will not go anywhere near spiders. And so I, so she, she gave me a less than enthusiastic smirk. But it's like, that, that's it. We all have our roles. You know? We all have our roles. Bro, what happens in a war? What happens with a draft? Is the draft going to be egalitarian? I'm not trying to make a statement that says that men are better than women at all. I don't believe that in the least, but I believe that we have a place and we have a role and we have a reason for being who we are and what we are. And it's been shit on dude to a degree that like, we're all just so ashamed. And I also think that it's important because I don't know that we've said it on this show, but I think it's important that the ethos is that there is no masculinity is it is an energy, right? It's a it's an energy type, right? <clears throat> you've got masculine energy, you've got feminine energy. But it doesn't mean that women can't do masculine things or women Oh dude, you know, my best friend is a woman who's she's she, yeah, she's one of the most in it, within her masculine, she's one of the strongest people I know. Without question. My wife is actually really similar to that too. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think a big problem was when we were younger, I grew up in a Hispanic environment and very machismo and the outside world would have looked in and said oh there's a bunch of cholos but it was a very it was a very hyper masculine environment where the idea of wearing a dress or playing with dolls or whatever was unheard of and boys didn't do that boys didn't play with dolls boys didn't do that and i think that when you say stuff like that all of a sudden you get into the problem where 
my son's four and he wants to play with his sister's Barbies. And it's, if you start to say that boys don't, don't do X, but they want to do X. Now all of a sudden that's why they're saying, well, then I'm not a boy. Yeah. It's called into question. If you're saying that girls wear dresses and not pants, but I want to wear pants. If you're saying that girls don't wear it, then I'm not a girl. And so we, we wake up 30 years later and it's, you were just saying that this is what you told them as kids. And so they're not saying anything differently than what you were saying. And that kind of scares me a little bit because I don't know that people have woken up to the... Now Now it's just turned into a divisive tactic. I think the issue that we have is everybody's committed to an ideology. And me too. We're all... There's no ongoing commitment to the principle that is truth. And this will get dangerous. I think that exists more in homogenized societies. I think societies that have, I'm interracial. My mom's white. My dad's Pakistani. My children are interracial. I have Christian heritage, Muslim heritage, and Jewish heritage. So I'm not saying that anything other than from a data-driven perspective, I think homogenized societies, if everybody looks the same, everybody worships the same, everybody more or less thinks the same, it's, it begins e- to be easier for people to point towards attempting to find what feels like neutral ground. But when we have so many circles to the Venn diagram, everybody feels like they need to pull a little bit more in their direction to keep themselves from being washed out. That's the problem with the melting pot. You get folks that get a little bit stronger in their viewpoints. You're a few years older than I am. And the idea is America is the greatest place because we're the melting pot. And all of the, the benefits of diversity and all of that, right? But you look up 15 years later, and now we're dealing with the other side of that. And the not that it's bad. Right, right. Not yeah. that it's bad. But, but no one thought to consider, well, what's the, other, yeah, what's the other side of the coin? Yeah. Dude, I got to be honest. I, my lack of culture has been one of the biggest pain points of my life. I was raised by a white woman in a white family. And I self-identified as white because how often you look in the mirror? White people are real quick to let you know that you're not white when you're, you know, six foot tall brown kid at 13 years old. But all the South Asians, I sure as shit wasn't South Asian. I didn't know anything. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the religion. I didn't know the. And that Shyamalan has a movie about this called Praying with Anger. He's an Indian kid raised in Pennsylvania, and he doesn't fit in with any of the white kids. So he goes back to India because he thinks he's going to discover his homeland, and he doesn't fit in with any of the Indian kids. Jordan Peterson says that if you're to live without cultures, like being put outside of society by, or putting like being put outside of the city gates by your father. And yeah, I don't think that the melting pot is bad. I think there's so much beauty around our country and our ability to integrate and with the, what we've taken from various cultures. But I do think that the dilution to culture can be damaging when not supplemented with what could be deemed as feasible replacement. It's true even if you're just quote-unquote white. Like my mom, her family is English, French, German, and Hungarian. Those are four very distinct cultures. And the Germans are maybe my favorite example. What a phenomenal culture the Germans have. And it's so deep and it's so rooted and there's so much to it. And there's linguistic nuance. When you go to Germany, there's hyper-efficient. There's like a national pride to efficiency. And yet when you get here, it all kind of melts off. And the English and the French and the German and the Hungarian, if you were to say that to somebody, they're like, oh, what's your heritage? And you're like, oh, I'm English, French, German, Hungarian. They look at you and they're like, all right, so you're white. But that's not, they're so different. It happens with Latin America too. Right. The difference between Colombia and Brazil is massive. Or Mexico and Panama. It's just such a distinct d- group of people. But then when we mash everybody together, you lose some of those beautiful nuances. I think it strikes at the heart of people's ability to 
build a cultural identity that actually serves them. And instead, they start to pay attention to the cultural identity that distinguishes them within the melting pot. And that's when you get like identity politics and group mind. And so you're no longer using the culture as a buttress to build yourself as an individual. Instead, you're using what little culture you have as a herd mentality type of badge. I am X. And then, and now it's all us versus each other. And that gets real dangerous too. Yeah. I think there's a lack of appreciation, right? It's not always appropriation, right? There, there are some times where, yes, you're like, I probably shouldn't do it like that, right? But I think that there's a, an appreciation that has gone with that, that we're not, we're not uh, talking about. Kasim, is there any, anything else that you want to rant on quickly before we, I have one last <laughs> question for you. I think I've done a pretty but, good job. I hit race, religion, sexism. And I did it all very poorly, Hector. So, you know, I look forward to my eventual storm. day job has been being a marketer. And so this is a, rather a different conversation than we usually have. I'll leave you with this, Kasim. When you think about modern masculinity, what does that mean to you? I don't know, man. I wish I did. And I knew that question was coming. Have you read Iron John? I've not. It's really worth a read. It's especially given that you're hosting this podcast, that might be like the quintessential book about masculinity in the modern age. But right now for me, it's finding a way like modern masculinity is trying to find where men fit in a world that decided that they didn't need men anymore. Mm. We got here really quickly, didn't we? Like it, it yeah. was a really strange, like all of a sudden we just looked up and all we got vilified or there was, I don't know, it's weird until the ship sinks. That's the other thing too, the pendulum swings. Like the ship's going to sink again. That's going to be my, I don't know. It'll be interesting to watch how quickly people become very pragmatic about what meant being a man is and what it means and the differences. And Yeah, you hope it doesn't get to the point where we have all got to go Walking Dead style or something like that. And all of a yeah. sudden, we've really got to prove our Bear grillsness. But yeah, I would imagine that there's going to be some event that, that wakes everybody up again. Hopefully it's nice and kind to us. <laughs> Kasim, where should people go and connect with you? You can find me on social, anywhere, at Kasim Aslam. My website is Kasim.me. Yeah, if you can't find me, don't listen to what I'm saying because I'm a marketer. I should be pretty visible. Yeah, yeah uh, we'll save your the, name, the nickname that Ralph has given you on Perpetual Traffic because Kasim also hosts a, a really big marketing show and we've already put, thrown it out there. Digital Herpes has been the, uh, the name that's gone thrown around on there. <laughs> and anyways, guys, we'll leave you with that. Hope you have an amazing, amazing day. Thanks for being part of the Modern Masculinity family and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>